0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a part two edition of the Independent Life podcast. We are continuing our conversation with Eric Davis, Director of Housing for the St. Francis Home and Mark Brisbane. If you did not check that episode out, it is a must listen Go back and listen to it before you listen to this one, if at all possible. It really sets the stage for what we get into in this episode, in which I jump right into getting his take on what are some of the systemic or policy-based solutions to addressing the affordable housing issue. He has some really, really good ideas. One of them that I really like is, is you know, fostering and cultivating relationships with property owners who oftentimes are demonized in this whole equation of affordable housing and oftentimes are really great, wonderful people who are an important part of the solutions uh, to addressing affordable and accessible housing. We then get into, well, what are some of the more individual level factors that are needed here? I'm talking about, you know, for the people that we work directly with to get housed. And he talks a bit about, you know, motivational interviewing and how to connect with them, how to provide for their basic needs. But also realizing that that, too, can be a situation where we keep people stuck and not addressing, you know, getting them into actual housing themselves. And some of the things that are needed in working with people as individuals coming from a place of non-judgment, a place of humility, an attitude of gratitude. And being able to come from a heartfelt place is perhaps the way that we can help individuals to really inspire them to go above and beyond what they think they're even capable of. We, we get into some real life stories and situations without the names of people in order to really illuminate the type of situations that people are in, uh, and especially for people that may not be so close to this issue that I hope can open up your heart to the fact that we are here and we're all connected to one another and that there are some, some, some people that are going some, through some really difficult situations. With children who are living in cars, who are, are just a, a in a very tough place, that I think anyone with any sense of a heart would resonate with. Um, so that we can make this issue a very real one that is important to all of us, and and I and we round out this conversation kind of the way it began, you know, really getting a better sense and understanding of. You know, who Eric is, who Mark is, and these qualities of uh, and what inspires them to be able to serve maximum service, the people that we're looking to help, that are in the most need uh, of our help, and what makes them tick. It's golden. It's very important to listen to, and uh, it's full of what, I think, what the theme and the thread for me in both of these, you know, this episode and the, the episode that was before this one, it's Grace. It's straight up grace, and I'm really interested to learn more about what is this force of grace that can come into our lives when we live in alignment, and that we are more connected to an energy and a force that's bigger than who we are, and when we can get out of our own way, how this grace can manifest itself into our lives and into the lives then of the people that we're we're serving. So Eric is is just someone that uh, has grace flowing from him, through him, and into others. And it and it certainly is, is something that has really really made an impact on me and in my heart. And I know it has really helped uh, Mark Brisbane. You know from from our center for independent living, who's in this conversation, helped to you know get people into situations that is gonna take their lives onward and upward. Enjoy this conversation. It is very, very powerful. All right, everyone, and welcome back to part two of our discussions with Eric Davis, director of housing for the St. Francis House, and uh, our own Mark Brisbane. This conversation has been so transformative for me in so many different ways. In it, uh, I've gotten to really, I think, uh, know you (laughs) uh, better than I could ever imagine, Eric. Uh, Thank you so much for showing up and uh, sharing your heart and your thoughts uh, related to yourself and, and uh, the efforts that you do in humanity. I wanna maybe get into the nuts and bolts of, of the affordable housing issues. And what you see in terms of the way the system is now, what are some viable solutions to it? And then I wanna start getting into what you're you know you had alluded to earlier on part one of our interview about your vision, you know, of those homes. So imagining one day you'll have, you know, be able to do that vision. But right now in the state of affairs, uh, the way that the system's set up in housing, what do you see as some really viable solutions to improving the issues related to affordable housing?
1: So I also kind of read between the lines. And so when the city of gainesville passed this uh what is uh, appears to be well intentioned renters um, uh, impose this renter's fee on every owner that has a rental property the guys was uh, under that uh, they are concerned about the renters that uh, they want things to be energy efficient better for the environment everyone to be in good safe housing for it to be livable blah 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 Well, I can tell you what's happened is that incurred cost to the owners has just increased the rent on uh, the people who uh, are most affected, and that's these people on a fixed income. Because at the end of the day, what makes me effective at my job is I understand both sides of the coin. I understand the people we serve, and I also understand why people have rental properties. They want passive income. They want X amount of dollar on their return on their investment. So when they're incurring more costs, who do you think that's going to trickle down to? It's going to trickle down to the people who are renting their properties. Luckily, uh, with the owners that I've um, had, had the honor and privilege of working with, actually, there are uh, At a number of the properties, like with the gentleman Scott, he actually charges and allows me to work with him less than what property management uh, and other owners charge in the same complexes. Um, He also, uh, in his units are typically uh, nicer than, than, than most of the other counterparts at certain properties. And so that's just been one effect that I've seen. Um, as far as, you know, and, and again, maybe it was well-intentioned, but what it ended up doing is also causing people to think about just selling uh, their properties because they don't want to have to give uh, the government more of their money, you know, and so you think, oh, it's 125 bucks annually. That's not a big deal. But when you think about people who have eight properties, you know, that adds up pretty quick. You're looking at a thousand dollars And people might say, well, he's got eight properties. It's plenty. Um, He's got plenty of money. But the reality is uh, this gentleman actually uh, has allowed me to, uh, and this will be our, 2023 will be our fifth year working together, has allowed us to create affordable housing spaces. What that looks like for me is meeting people who want to make a return on their investment but the way i broach it with each and every individual owner that i meet for the first time is you're going to rent your property out allow me to earn your trust and let me rent it out to someone who i think will be a good fit and through doing that i've been referred to other owners Um, i've had property owners actually build new construction to work with me and the woman i'm eating to have lunch with today is building a a massive two Uh, new structures to continue to do the work we've done together because at the end of the day it feels good to help people Mm -hmm. and people are working when we are working together uh, they get to humanize the individuals we serve they get to see firsthand the impact Mm -hmm. and the quality of life that we end up bringing and I always speak to the truth of it I can't do what I do without them vice versa and the reality is if it wasn't for beautiful human beings who, yes, they want to make a a return on their investment, but they took a chance on me. You know, so many times when I first meet meet these folks, and especially I can touch on the, the woman, Maxine, who I'm going to have lunch with after this podcast, I remember the looks on these owners' faces when I'm saying, you know, work with me. Help me to give people a second, third, and tenth chance. People coming from prison, jails, psych hospitals, homelessness—people uh, that just need a uh, working poor, as you described—and um, of course, uh, they're always. Uh, that's always met with a, a, an air of caution. Sure, but after working with me a while, they're so thankful, you know. And I actually get texts all the time uh, from the owners that we work with, and a lot of them have formed into true friendships, like Mark said. Um, So it's really, it's just a blessing, man. And it's just, um, I'm just glad to be a part of this process, uh, really.
0: So what I'm hearing there is um, a, a big part of the solution around affordable housing, especially people like yourself who's trying to place people who are homeless into housing is develop relationships with property owners. Correct. And work with them, work to earn their trust and be part of that solution. And, 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 and I love that because like in so many um, of the circles that I, I, I can get in, it seems like oftentimes it's these property owners who are often demonized. You know, like when you say passive income and stuff like that, maybe like someone might think of, well, they're just driving around in their limos and it's is this thing out there that's like making the money. But I, I, I'm also aware of certain property owners that like, that's, this is what's putting food on their table. You know, or you know, it's like you know, this is what's feeding you know our family, and and the uh, the idea that they're making money to to provide for themselves and their family, and it's not always like tons of money where they're like super rich by any means. Um, they also have a lot of pressures and stresses, and like you're saying, like one of them being recently, you know, an, a, a renter's fee now that they're 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 having to encumber. And uh, you know, I often heard in the in the um, pandemic, you know, the, the the rental moratoriums and all these other kind of things. And I was hearing from property owners like, what are we supposed to do? And I even hear from property owners about, you know, all, you know the, the housing voucher that we got from the housing authority, you know, is uh, isn't being honored or they're not paying on it, or I got to wait three months for the payment to come through. And oftentimes I find that like, it seems to me that there's demonizing and then there's a lack of understanding about the challenges that they're going through you know, as someone that's also trying to operate a business that many people don't understand. And I don't know if you can you know speak to that as well.
1: I can. So I'll just give you an example of of the the beautiful woman, Maxine. So she is a um, a black woman who immigrated from Jamaica. She is a single parent household whose son uh, just started college this year. She also cares for her eighty something year old mother that has uh, dementia, Alzheimer's. And um, she is a full-time nurse at the VA, you know, so she serves people. She's a good God-centered woman, and um, she's not rich, you know. When she began this journey, uh, she was on the brink of uh, bankruptcy and losing her own home, because when she was visiting her homeland, Jamaica, she had a massive... uh, I can't stroke or thing, Mm -hmm. brain, anyways, aneurysm. Uh Uh, But when she went to the hospital there in Jamaica, they told her basically to make her peace because there was nothing they could do for her. And she shares with me how God came to her and spoke to her. And for two weeks, she should have been dead in two minutes there when she went, when they diagnosed what was going on. And it was beyond the capabilities of any hospital there in Jamaica. Well, what ended up happening is her sharing that story with me, and her getting flown back here after waiting two weeks, and getting lifelighted to the hospital here, and immediately going to emergency surgery. And the surgeon and doctor telling her, "You should have been dead two weeks ago." Wow. Um, she said, "No, I'm talking to God. Like this, this is what's going to happen." She had to learn how to walk again, how to brush your teeth, write, read, speak, um, and now this beautiful human being has gotten into this vision of creating affordable housing. She's actually one of the owners that built new construction um, to work with me and is in the process of doing so again. Wow. I can also give a shout out to my man, Efron Tinsley, uh, a black gentleman. He and I grew up together. We were good friends. We went to uh, you know middle school together um, and our paths crossed again after uh, someone had told him the good work we were doing. He was referred to me and then uh, we just connected. You know, spirit recognizes spirit. He's someone who had worked hard his entire life since we were kids. Um, and when I say kids, I mean teenage years. Um, and so he had to work hard for everything he had. He saved up uh, because he worked at a local hospital and through a county uh, agency and stuff for a bit. He had accumulated a little bit of a retirement. What did he chose to do? He chose to take a huge risk and deplete that entire account to purchase a home, to set up a property, to completely gut and renovate and make it brand new construction wow. to set up. And we rent by the room and he has four tenants in there who he loves and you know through that chance he took on me and on this thing that's bigger than any of us um he's looking at trying to get another property so again these are regular human beings who are not uber wealthy who literally want to have and find some financial security and maybe even bridge some intergenerational wealth to their children Um, as well one day so these are just beautiful human beings man that are just it's awesome a lot of risk yeah
0: yeah I know Mark you have some experience too and uh, you know trying to place people into housing and have encountered all kinds of you know different property owners and uh, whatnot what do you have to add to that conversation about really kind of developing and cultivating uh, relationships with property owners as a piece of uh, really addressing the affordable housing issue
2: I, I, through my experience, I found a couple that was, they were they were open ears. They were willing to work with me, willing to work with the consumer. But for the most part, I don't know a lot of property, private ones like Eric. Now, I, I will contact Eric and explain his situation and, and he'll ask me where he, he'll tell me what he has that may fit the person. Cause with explaining about mainstream vouchers, it only covers the city limits of Gainesville. So if Eric's got a property owner, that there's a unit available, he'll work with me out to get them in there with them. But for me, I don't know a lot of private owners. I'm just now getting connected with Beverly. I think uh, Eric knows Beverly, uh, but she's in Waldo. The mainstream folks won't, can't go there, um, but I can send lower income people, if it's a emergency situation to Beverly um, and explain who Beverly is as a private owner, she, she just got a property there and she's in the process of getting another one um where she houses single parents mothers with small children and elderly mm-hmm. so I wanted her on this call today but she was tied up so maybe the next time um it's players like that Tony that I you know I I need to hunt down more get connected with so I'm gonna pick I'm gonna start picking Eric's brain and Get him, getting him to loop me in with some of these cats, and yeah. you know, but not all of them's going to be. They're chasing that dollar tone, and you've got to you got to get them to see past that 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 dollar uh-huh. and see the person, um, and be under the understanding that once you house them, you don't have to worry about them bringing their rent check to you. You're automatically going to be getting this sent over to you. Gainesville Housing Authority does their job; is going to pay you every month, um, a minimal of. $900 mm-hmm. um, for rent It's better than you waiting three, four months where somebody ain't going to pay you and you got to work on a them. So yeah, it, it's a, it's a huge battlefield. The, these apartment complexes that are run by, you know, companies mm-hmm. uh, like CMC and some of these other ones, um, Boss Art Realty, they're, they're about money. They have a set standard of we have these properties, but what comes with those properties is first, last month, deposits, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. They they don't want to work with you, Tony. That, that's a lot of what's been discussed on the COC, continuing care meetings is getting locked in with them um, so these people can bypass having to pay those deposits. Uh, I've just got to do what Eric's doing, and he's busy, and I I bugged him so much I ain't even bothering him just getting locked in and maybe going out to some of these people with him and Maybe they see me in a wheelchair. They're like, hey, we need to work with this guy. Uh-huh. Um, using that, I hate to say it, but using that as a trump card is a ticket to get them to kind of ease up. So,
0: yeah,
2: yeah it's it's um, it's tough. I've, I've got two people right now. I got a lady looking for a two-bedroom, safe neighborhood. She's in the hospital. Um, she got on a Section 8 wait list. Well, she got her voucher through that. She can't find anywhere. She is running into huge obstacles. Mm-hmm. This lady's got congestive heart failure She's got a lot of she's got mental and emotional problems that she's dealing with and a 19-year-old son that's um requires a lot of care. And I just feel so bad for her. Um Eric, you see I'm front loading you, man. i I'll be texting you, which you, got, <laughs> you got something. So um it's it's things like that, man. It, you boys see all this gray hair, don't you? When so I got into housing. I used to have some brown hair. I didn't have this frog skin hanging down. I look like I was 25. Now I'm going on 75. I'll age you. Worrying over people, man. So.
0: so Eric, do you see any, in addition to cultivating healthy, positive uh, relationships with uh, property owners, do you see any kind of systemic or policy related solutions to a lot of the issues that are there? Um, You know, whether they're uh, tax incentives or, you know, I saw the city commission. I I don't know if you were there at this meeting. That was a few years ago. I think it was right before COVID, but it was uh, Gainesville Rising. And uh, so those that don't know in our area, there's a lot of uh, new apartment construction. You know, there's a lot of units and on the bottom, it's commercial and I think there's an ordinance that limits the amount of units per like square, you know, like for an acre you know, development. But there's a way to get around that if um, there's a certain percentage of units that are affordably housed. I think there was something around that. Like a lot of people were having very heated conversations around. So, yeah, I'm just using that as an example of a potential, uh, you know, systemic type policy based solution you know, to, to addressing affordable housing. I'm not advocating for that as a good solution, but I'm just using that example. Do you have any, you know, ideas of what you think might be good solutions in terms of like policy or systemic fixes to affordable housing?
1: Yeah. So you touched on something I actually just was discussing yesterday. And that is uh, through my understanding too, which is limited. I don't pretend to be an expert on everything I discuss. Um, from my understanding, all those uh, affluent, uber wealthy uh, luxury student livings that we're describing, which is also driving the cost of of the rental market mm-hmm. up here and t- people who actually live here yep. and are not going to be transient, meaning the majority of the students are transient. And so they do say that something I think that the figure I heard was 10% of each of those uh, luxury buildings are quote unquote, affordable housing, uh-huh. show me, show me. Yeah. Please show me. I want to know because I've yet to meet one individual that was in anything affordable in any of those places. So I also would like to say, first of all, when I listen to bureaucrats and municipalities from city, county, state, fed say affordable housing, how do we do affordable housing? how is it that I have gotten out of here as a diagnosed schizophrenic and recovering opiate addict and created affordable housing with nothing to back me. So I, in one side say, shame on y'all because also I hear of this budget that is allocated each year, X amount, of million dollars for affordable housing. Where does it go? Yeah. Now the other side of that coin is let's not just criticize, let's offer to help. Yeah. So let's focus on the good they have done. I have seen places go up recently, Sweetwater, which is beautiful and some of these other uh, 55 and up communities that are quote unquote um, affordable as well. So shout out to the city and the Neighborhood Housing Development Corporation and, and other nonprofits and people who have made a difference, um, and even to St. Francis House for purchasing the Sunrise Inn and the Arbor House. So there are also uh, people in all of those positions who are just like you and I, Mark, who wanna help, who are helping. So I don't wanna just criticize and say, shame on you. Um, in one breath, I wanna say that through through my, through my anger, um, but also I wanna say kudos and let's get together, let's collaborate and let's focus on expanding on what I've been able to do as one individual with other individuals who are coming together and putting a change in motion, because uh, even as uh, Tupac Shakur once said, even if I don't change the world, I will help spark the brain that puts that motion in order. So I just thought that was really powerful, too, you know, so um, I think that we could collaborate. And I do think if uh, municipalities and cities and county states were open to uh, coming in and, and, and talking to not just me, I know there's other people around this country who are doing beautiful things, but get with us, with people with boots on the ground. Don't operate from your castle, mm. from a place of theory and philosophy, what sounds good, yeah. because theory and philosophy sound great. Sure. Let's talk about the reality with people who are here with boots on the ground, and let's connect those two bridges, because there's a disconnect there. Speaking
0: of which, you know, like that idea of like, okay, you know, the, they're building these, you know, high-rise luxury apartment units with commercial on the bottom, and we're going to dedicate 10% to affordable housing. Uh, from what I'm aware of, a, a very similar model was done in Tallahassee, and they left it up to the property owners to rent out those 10% of the units and they'll quickly say well we advertised it and we couldn't find anyone to take it so um, you know there was a clause in there that they could then rent it out for market value and and kind of like there was ways to usurp around some of these like requirements and and all these other kind of things so again like theory sounds good but then in practice you know there's there's always seems to be ways of skirting around uh, certain things that can make it you know so problematic so is, is part of this then, you know, creating more units, uh, like stock and inventory that's out there that people can actually get into? Is that part of the solution out there? So, you know, I, I see here in Gainesville, at least, like there's a, you know, a lot of you know, hotels, say older hotels for sale or uh, things that might already be established. I've even heard in other areas where strip malls or uh, straight up malls, you know, have been converted or, or those kind of things. Is this, is this an, a viable option or solution to address in the affordable housing?
1: So without uh, sharing too much of my vision, I've already learned through being brought in because people heard what I was doing and and wanted to pick my brain. uh, Within a matter of uh, 15 minutes, I realized they were doing a feasibility study on me to steal what I had worked so hard to build. And so without divulging too much, And then people taking that and using it to their advantage of people who don't have the same intentions in mind. Uh Um, yes. Let's look at the premise of Uber, of Lyft, Uh of Airbnb. They took what already existed and made billions of dollars off of it. Mm -hmm. Why can't we take that same premise and apply it to homelessness and to affordable housing? Ah, we can, I have, and I'm continuing to do so.
0: Wow. I like that you know these disruptive innovations, yeah, as they call it, you know, disruptive to taxi cabs or disruptive to hotels. Perhaps there can be a disruptive solution to affordable housing that'll disrupt it in a way that it can really benefit some people. So talk to me then about like in episode one you alluded to your vision, you know, providing like uh, homes, you know, to people and families, and and if you don't mind putting any, uh, you know where you're, uh, you know, comfortable with divulging. What what does that vision look like that, you know, that, that you have for a better future?
1: The sky is, is not the limit. It's only a ceiling. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, what I've been able to do, uh, what I've been allowed to do um, is really nothing short of a miracle. Um, but as it continues to expand and more owners get involved and more properties get set up, uh, the most recent one we've set up is a seven-bedroom, three-bathroom. Stunning home. Wow, that's huge. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I've uh, set up homes on two acres, 2,600 square foot. I've set up homes in neighborhoods where people would say, I can't afford to live there. I like to set up homes that I want to live in, You know, historic homes, beautiful homes, homes by the Levin College of Law. And uh, neighborhoods off of close to Millhopper Road on 53rd, um, you know, over in the Stephen Foster area, beautiful homes um, that are homes. They're not empty shells of houses. These are move-in ready homes. To where when our guests that we serve walk into, they buy into their own success. And when I create these, not only to have a pseudo family environment, I create these to be people's forever homes. I also give the option to people who want to hand up and get there and continue to uh, grow Mm -hmm. and expand themselves and their personal path in their life and use it as a stepping stone to get to the next step in their life, but giving them that autonomy and that freedom to choose. Um, And so, yeah, it's just been amazing what we've been able to do in these short number of years here doing this.
0: You know, you're doing it also from working at now the St. Francis Home um, and previously at Grace Marketplace, which are, uh, I believe, like uh, would be considered homeless shelters. What would you say the importance of having homeless shelters is in this whole system of getting people from uh, homelessness to getting housed or, you know, just within this system, there seems to be a very important place for these kind of shelters? What would you have to say to people that aren't maybe familiar with the types of services that these
1: offer? Let's allocate more money to how we end homelessness and that's housing. Bingo. You know, in and of itself, uh, homelessness is a traumatic event, but in and of itself, having to come to a shelter is a traumatic event. Uh-huh. Um, and let's allocate more resources, more money, more people to focusing on the real solution and that's housing because I'm not in the business of managing people's homelessness. I wanna end people's homelessness. Um, And um, a lot of this stuff, again, shout out to my man, Jeff Groover. I would just sit back and watch and also John DeCarmine and I I would watch and I would listen and I would borrow from them and then uh, create things myself. But just seeing uh, a vision um, and long-term and solution, and typically, I don't like to say anything's impossible. It's, it's really just a matter of time. Uh-huh. Um, and with patience and perseverance, really anything's possible. Um, it just takes people who are willing to dedicate their life to, to creating a change. Um, and at this point, I've chosen to do that.
0: You know, I maybe want to get into then um, something that you said on the first episode, but it points to what I'm uh, basically going to say is this. So we opened this episode talking about systemic policy-based changes, how we can really come up with some solutions there. But then what are the individual level factors, the actual people that are homeless um, or them or their families that we can work with them on? So that they can be also be a part of the solution. On the on the first episode, you you mentioned something about self-limiting beliefs um, that people might have. How perhaps in your own experiences that you talked about in the first episode, where you almost wanted to give up. There was 51% of you that wanted to keep going, 49% that wanted to give up. You know, maybe people won't have that same ratio. Um, you know, so I'm trying to think of like. You know, because we, Mark and I work it, with individuals and we find ourselves also trying to give them the skills, the education, the experience they need to live independently. So we recognize there's individual level factors that can, we can have influence over to, to help people. Um, what, what are some of the things that you see on that individual level that you've been able to work with people on, that they've been able to gain that have allowed them to put themselves in a position where they have been able to get housed?
1: So, a couple of things that I learned, and, and again, uh, shout out to my man, Jeff Groover, but uh, things like motivational interviewing, trauma informed care, meeting individuals where they are, and realizing that the trauma uh, and the shock that their limbic system are in, and the fact that when people like will say, get a job, well, let's really uh, look at that. Let's look at the person who's unhoused. Who doesn't know where their next meal is going to come from? Doesn't know if they lay down and close their eyes, they may not be accosted or beaten, or if they're a woman, uh, assaulted. Um, when I imagine being in that fight or flight place physiologically, uh, my brain is in survival mode. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about a job. I'm not worried about a house or paying rent. I'm worried about surviving. Right. And then so we can address and take people out of that survival uh, cycle that they are in physiologically, we're not going to be able to address and give them the opportunity to begin to address some of the issues uh, that may have caused them to be before us in the first place. And so it's really an individualized approach. And that's where I think we miss with neurodiversity too. We want everyone to fit in this box and I mean, housing first, yeah, it's the best overall philosophy. Absolutely. I can get behind that. But, um, how is it trauma-informed to put someone in a place where when they're making a certain amount of income they only have one choice and where we're putting them is in an area where uh, 90 percent of those people are coming from the same place they're trying to escape so really we're just reintroducing them to trauma we're compounding their issues if they're someone who's newly in recovery or trying to get away from drugs and alcohol or or a prior um, person that may have uh, assaulted them and now we're just bringing them and putting them right back in on top of one another How is that really uh, helping? Yeah. It's not. So scattered site housing is also a big thing that I learned and I'm a proponent of. And that is why my favorite thing to do is find big, beautiful homes and set them up. Because at the end of the day, the person to the left and to the right goes to work just like they do and pay rent. They don't know where that person's come from. And that gives the person the dignity and the freedom of being uh, a regular human being, just like everyone else. But as far as you're touching on again, systemic issues, man. Oh, it's
0: it's hard. It's all people. of it, right? You know, it's not yeah, one or the other. It is. Yeah.
1: And we're begging. We're begging a much bigger question, and one that we would not have time in, to answer today. But I guess uh, what what I'm hearing from you is, what tools do we give people? I guess what I do is. Um, I've come to a place of peace and surrender and acceptance where I can't save anybody. I can't even save my own child. What can I do? I can love them. I can love them where they are. I can nurture them. I can encourage them. But most importantly, I can lead by example. And I think that's also why it's very important for people to talk openly about past struggles because when people say oh i don't want to live near people who are mentally ill i don't want to live uh, near an addict i have to stop them and say you're talking to one right now Mm -hmm. there you go you know and they'll say well i could never imagine you so when i've shared my story i've been asked to go and speak at state conferences and stuff in orlando people are always blown away and say i can never imagine you doing drugs i can never imagine you uh, struggling like the, what you talk about with your mental health, and I say, what a blessing! What <laughs> uh, a blessing!
0: that's part of the stigma too is that like you know addiction or mental health issues is only a problem of people that are homeless or poor while it is a problem there it's like i know lots of people uh, and the research bears this out that are highly affluent social economic status even their kids um are highly addictive and 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 it's like this thing in the shadows even among the wealthy and and the rich and and all these other kind of things that um it's very prevalent You know, it's something that I think cuts across all socioeconomic, you know, statuses is addiction and mental health challenges. And it shouldn't be stigmatized as like only something that impacts people that are in poverty, for example.
1: I think that's a good thing you touched on because it doesn't care. Uh, Addiction and health transcends uh, race, creed, color, uh, socioeconomic uh, definition, uh, class. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Another thing that I like to always tell people is, again, in my humble opinion, we are all diagnosable with something.
0: 100%. <laughs> Eric, I like
2: to use the, I like to use the term because I don't judge anybody, color, creed, nothing. I I put my pants on just like you do. I may do it different, but I slide my pants on just like you do. <laughs> nice part. Um, that's what I used to, when I worked for the Department of General Justice, I used to tell those kids in there, you know, a lot of, you know, sling dope, sell it. You know, still do all those things. I tell them kids, I said, I'm no better than you. A son, I put my pants on just like you do, so I could get them to look me face you know eye to eye and they didn't feel inferior or I'm looking down on them by no means because I'm like, hey, we've all done dirt. so yeah. you know, just to get people to kind of relax and say, okay this this guy can he gonna work with me. he cares about me, opens that door. Um, you, you got to, in every situation, man, you got to talk to people like you're on the front porch with them, that you don't have issue with them. You don't judge them because of their circumstances or what they've been through or who they are. You don't do that because you're not going to get that person to have faith and belief in themselves they can accomplish right. and they can they can, you know, be something and be somebody. Tony, I think that's one of the reasons why I gravitated to uh, Eric. We we get along really well, like brothers. Um, he's easy to work with, and he just has that understanding like I do now. He he has a nickname for me. I, I <laughs> I'll let you tell. I'll let him tell you what that is. But but um, hey, if I'm seen that way, then hey, that's good with me. So I'm okay with that. It's um I, I always when someone does get into a place to live and they're off the streets man and they just you know start thanking me thanking me thanking me thanking me thanking eric thanking eric thanking eric i'm like don't thank us it ain't us it, I, it's all god it's we're doing his work so i give him the glory and it just a lot of them they just man they really let it out then so it's a it's a strain to do what we do but it's a blessing and, and there's um a lot of gratitude and, and uh, thankfulness there but it is man it can be a strain it's it's um uh, it's not an easy. Thing.
0: it's sacred work it's very sacred what's that nickname eric
1: uh so i'd like to also give a shout out to my man mark watson for uh, ah. bridging the gap between uh me and mr brisbane here but uh, Mark used to say, yeah, he's just this good old boy, <laughs> And after meeting uh, Mark, I said, this dude is the redneck Gandhi. That's
0: hilarious.
1: Yeah. Beautiful too, when I met Mark is I didn't know he was in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, and then when he shared his story with me about how he wasn't born that way, but ended up in a wheelchair... You know it also helps with my perspective when i'm meeting an individual like mark uh, brisbane here and i don't hear him complain he doesn't he's always giving praise and and being grateful and focusing on the positive and having an attitude of gratitude and i say damn it yeah. you know when i meet people like this and here i am complaining about something minuscule yeah. and this gentleman's in a wheelchair that same perspective happens when I go to visit a dentist, and they mention two root canals and crowns, and I've never had it. And I'm thinking, oh my god, the money, I can't afford it. How painful it's going to be. And then I go to do my first case management meeting with a mom who was diagnosed with bone cancer and given six to twelve months to live, and has a nine-year-old daughter, and a fiance. And that perspective, uh, confronted with my own mortality, is like, wow,
0: mm-hmm. puts it in perspective.
2: I can relate to that. I. I I use those situations to every day when I I get in my chair, you know, or I go to do something that's I know is going to hurt like, man, it's going to go to hell when I do it. And then I think about people, other people that I know personally, what they, you know, been diagnosed with and what they're going through and then losing them, you know, it, it snatches me, you know, wakes me up, shakes me. So I'm like, OK, man, uh, quit, quit being a baby. Get it. You know, we're grind, we're crying, grind, get to grinding. So, what's that old saying? Instead of waking up whining, I wake up shining. So, <laughs> that's what I try to do every morning. Is just keep that, just lock and load, man. So, as soon as my rump hits the seat of my chair, I know it's time to get with it. So, um, uh, and, and that's the way. It, that's what keeps me going. So, but uh, I mean, as soon as I get off this call, I got. <laughs> got a strap on that helmet. It's time to get in the ball game got to
0: start helping. So, yeah, so Well, maintaining that attitude of gratitude, having the perspective of, uh, you know, our troubles compared to other troubles, man, these are, these are very important. I think for, for you all, especially to do the work that you do, Eric, I want to, you know, kind of like maybe round this conversation out kind of like the way you began in episode one. Um, you were talking from a very divine place a place where of authenticity. I'm wondering if you can help me out in, in in explaining what inspires you to do what you do. You know, you talked about in the in the first episode, if you don't mind repeating that prayer about maximum service and repeating that prayer, what are the core values, you know, or perspectives or attributes that that this allow you to live that prayer.
1: Um I just try to do the best I can. And I know I fall short of my own ideals. I know that I can be a hypocrite. Um, I know that I can be, um, at times, um, I'm like a prism. We all are. We're not one thing. We're many. Um, But I I can, at one point in time in my life, I've become what I despise in the world. So trying to practice humility. And um, beyond humility, just trying to be grateful, remember where I've come from, and also ultimately always remember that we're all just one decision away from a completely different life. Mm Yeah. You know, know, they say every day we live, uh, our life is borrowed. You know, we're not promised tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I just, you know, recently I watched a documentary about uh, Katrina in five days at Memorial. And like i i talked about in the first episode looking up and, and wanting to be a change agent um, i realized that i've been given the platform to do just that and i want to continue um, but part of my personal path part of my spiritual path teaches me that i need to serve you know see god find god help others um i don't pretend to know <laughs> what God is. Um, and I, I struggle with my own doubts. I struggle with my own questions that time, but it's through my experience and small, subtle things where I'm just like, wow. And one of those is like this. So my grandmother, who's my dad's mom is uh, 90, uh, and she was in a dementia unit. She really had no lucidity or anything like that. And my son had just turned seven and, uh, you know, the life I live today, I'm like, you know what we're going to do for Christmas? We're going to go visit my grandma, your great grandma in a dementia unit and hang out with all those people. Like that is what my life can look like today. And I just am so glad to lead by example for my son. So we got flowers, we brought them to her. But in the beginning, in that day, we were watching uh, Star Wars. It was the first time he's just turned seven. We're at the age where we can actually watch something live action Mm -hmm. and not animate. And he was real into it. Anyhow, We were watching the original one from 1977, and we were down there, and my grandma was just there, you know, my son's great-grandma, and I don't know if she knew what was going on, but there was a moment where she stopped, and she looked at me, and she said, I want to watch a movie. I said, okay. I looked at Charger, we're like, I said, Grandma, what do you want to watch? She looked at me right in my eyes and said, Star Wars, (laughs) and I said, I said, wow. You know, like you can't make that up. And it was like, what did my son and I do? We had to go to like four or five stores to find an original DVD because they didn't have a Blu ray player at the old folks uh-huh. down there at Hero Beach. But we ended up watching uh, the original Star Wars from 77 or whenever it was from, with not only my grandma, but like a dozen other folks who didn't have anyone come to visit them. And I just like to remind my son that, you know, this can be us. And not only is this us, if the you know, can be us. When or if this is us, we would want the same things done for us. And um, it's also times like, you know, I still have people that struggle with their disease of addiction who have not found recovery. You know, I had heard one of my close buddies is like a brother, I'm I'm his godfather to his son was using. And uh, I made the tough decision of calling his father and saying, hey, this dude's using again, like I have a bad feeling about this. The next time we spoke I, I was praying to God because I was having doubt one day and I was like I need a sign I need a sign that you're real talking to my sister who's who's deceased as well Chandra mm-hmm. and said, I need a sign if y'all you know show me something and I'm drinking my cup of coffee take first few sips and then I get a phone call I pick up the phone and it's my friend's dad crying hysterically and this is a man who had been to prison who had been a millionaire southern old school dude who I had never seen cry before crying and the first thing he says is god works in mysterious ways wow uh, what i ended up doing is when he went down there when i told him his son was using um he actually was at the dinner table with he and his girlfriend he had been in the bathroom a long time he went in there had to bust the door down he was overdosing and dying from fentanyl he had gotten bad uh, pills but if it wasn't for me making that phone call again uh, i can't make this stuff up Um, and i can't take credit for it i just get to be a part of that process i have someone knocking at my office door we'll pause there Yeah, yeah. go for it hey gentlemen uh we may have to pick this up i i need to meet uh someone for lunch one of those property owners yeah so uh, some colleagues need some help and there's a guest here uh that i need to be a service to but uh anyways
0: well well thank um, you eric so much for coming on and having this conversation i could talk to you all day man thank you for sharing that story it really uh, i think brings it full circle our conversation when you first opened it talking about grace and i feel like that worked through you and helping to save the life of uh, your friend there and uh, you have so much to offer thank you so much for taking your valuable time to share your life experiences and uh, more importantly your heart thank you so much Thank you. You take care, Mark. You take care, Eric. Until the next time, onward and upward.
1: Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.